I'm so excited to share with you my interview with Alex Upperman. Now, Alex is not one to brag on himself, but he has wisdom and success far beyond his years. He's had five uh, successful e-commerce ventures with multiple exits. He's invested passively in over 40 multifamily real estate syndications with 10 different sponsors. And he's saved millions in taxes due to getting the IRS designation of real estate professional, which he talks about in the podcast. We get to hear his story, his background, his insights, and also his perspective on the seven keys to passive investing in multifamily real estate. Hope you enjoy. When I think about investing in general, it's a lot of it can be boring or theoretical and abstract. Whereas once you have a story, it's like, oh, okay. Now it all now I get to have a real life example mm-hmm. of of something, and it's a, a real world example from your perspective. So let's just jump in, and we can go in any direction you want to go. A, a great story, uh, you know, a, a deal that went really well, a deal that you had a lot of struggles where there are a lot of learning lessons, but I'll just let you jump mm-hmm. in on anything that comes to mind when it comes to deal Yeah, stories. I mean, uh, I think one thing that jumps to mind when you say, you know, investing can and can be very abstract. Um, and, and one of the things that I think of when you say that is, you know, there's this, the, the adage in real estate is location, 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 right? You always hear that. Um, and... I still managed to underestimate the importance of that on my uh, when I was purchasing smaller multifamily, you know, and I, I was taking the more active approach when I initially got into multifamily and we were buying, you know, 20 to 40 unit type properties. And, um, you know, ultimately, the, there was a few reasons those didn't go well. One, the, the age of the properties was an issue, you know, being 100 plus year old buildings, you just, um, it's it's easy to underestimate how much money it's going to take in, in CapEx and, and repairs and maintenance on those older buildings. So that was one thing, but two is just location. Um, you know, you can, you can be in a good area and still be in a bad location. I learned that lesson through that process too, where, you know, a couple of these, you know, we're in Midtown, right? Which is overall a pretty good location right. to be, but you can still be in bad locations within Midtown. Right. And so um, really, Placing an importance on where your building is, not just the area, but the street, you know, the curb appeal, like all of those different things. Um, you know, the the one that was the the most challenging was in the worst location, and it was actually our nicest building, right? It was a newer, it was 1970s construction, so a lot newer compared to the others. Um, so from a construction standpoint, it was, uh, you know, it was our best property, but it was in the worst location. And, you know, we dealt with everything that you can possibly imagine from someone getting shot to squatters to people cooking drugs, you know, mm-hmm. you name it. Right. Um, so, you know, if you if you if you looked at the property, it looked like an, if you saw pictures of it, it looked yeah. like a nice building. Right. Um, but learn the hard way that location is is really is really critical and that real estate's not foolproof. You know, I think a lot of people think that. Um, you know, you just can't can't really lose in real estate, and for the most part, it if you do it right, it is hard to lose. Yeah. Um, but you can make some critical mistakes, and uh, that can cause you to 
to you know lose money on a deal yeah, for sure. So take me back to this particular property. How many units are we talking? Um, the one in the the rough location was was 30, 32 units. Thirty two. Time frame roughly what year? Bought it in like uh, six sixteen. Okay, two thousand sixteen, and this is you and your partner. Yeah, correct. Fifty fifty partner. Yeah. Fifty fifty partner. What's the kind of backstory? Found out about it. Timeline to close. Like yeah. what's. Well, we, we'd been, uh, you know, buying the single family and that had been going really well. And so with that going well, I kind of was putting more and more trust into him and his right. decision making. And um, so he, he brought the deal to me and he had, you know, uh, reached out to some brokers. And I don't even know how, who knows, that they might have been, it might have been listed for two years and right. no one wanted it. And we right. were the, the first sucker to come along to actually right. want to buy it. <laughs> um, but we ended up, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, put it under contract and bought it and you know, pretty quickly it was just, you know, you started under, un, uncovering all the, yeah. the skeletons. What was the business plan? Uh, we added a couple units. Okay. So there was like a storage area where we could add two units. So that was part of it. That was a pretty light value add. We did a, a new roof, um, added the two units. And other than that, it was it was pretty turnkey. The other ones were heavier construction projects, right. which, you know, ultimately we ended up going way over budget because mm-hmm. as you get, you know, start tearing things out in these older buildings, you start uncovering more and more. And so we way underestimated the amount of money it was going to take to, to get those those other properties where they needed to be. Right. Um, but on this particular one, it was, it was, yeah, it was add the couple units, which can be, you know, do you know, really meaningful things to the value of your property, totally. just adding a couple units um, and, uh, you know, increasing increasing rents yeah. slightly, you know, with the market as, as units turned over. Third party management? Third party management, but um, they were in over their heads. Um, you know, they, it, third party management is tough and this was a, it's just a property needed to be very, very hands-on. It, it's probably impossible to find a third party management company that could you know, really run this property well. So you need you need someone you need an owner who's going to be either managing it themselves and being willing to be at the property you know almost every day, or working with third party and being still very very hands on. Right. Right. You know, some people think you can just turn the keys over to these third party management companies. That's just it's not how it works. You know, maybe you can get lucky and just have an easy property because it's in such a good location that it just kind of runs itself. Um, but even if you're using third party, you know, you need, you need to be overseeing them and, 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 and keeping, um, you know, a close eye on things. Yeah. Life cycle of this deal. How long did you own it? Uh-huh. Too How long. How did it turn out? Yeah. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, about a year in, I was like fed up because it was, it was spending so much time on the asset management, right? Which asset management is like, um, kind of the terminology for, you know, what you do above property management, right? Like overseeing the numbers and overseeing the property management of the property. And that was taking a tremendous amount of time. I was on the phone constantly with the the property manager and I had the business at the time. And, um, it was just, it was, it was such a time suck. And, you know, it was, it was just, it was pretty obvious. This is not worth my time. I'm, you know, I had been in, started investing in syndications. That way, made way more sense to right. move capital over to that. Um, you know, if if I'm going to be that hands on, then I need to be earning exactly. much greater returns. And I wasn't. I was earning lower returns. Right. Um, and so, wanted to get out of the building. And then we started the marketing process. 
And you know, it took probably a year and a half to actually close and sell the deal because we, had, we were under contract and then we had a fire. And so that buyer backed out and then you're back to marketing the building again. And so it seemed like you know, anything that could go wrong uh, would go. We had another buyer under contract and we're almost to closing and then there was a shooting and that killed the deal because it was agency debt. Oh. Um, and there has to be, you know, there's some that, 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 uh, incident killed that deal. So right. I, uh, well, honestly, I, I lost some sleep over that deal just because it was, um, it was just a stressful property to own. And, right. um, but finally was able to, to get out of it after probably two and a half years of owning it and wash my hands of it and move yeah. on. So net, net, net returns, we can kind of pivot and talk uh-huh. about the hindsight of a deal, which we could go deep on this. Um, how do you recall what the exact return was? Are you calculating yeah. it on cash on cash, IRR? What's Yeah, we actually ended up taking uh, a small loss on it. Yeah. You know, when we originally had it under contract, we were going to do, we were actually going to make, you know, a decent amount of money on it yeah. and, and be able to, to move on. But then the deal kept falling through because things kept happening. Yeah. And during that time frame, um, just the, the, the financial operations were, were struggling. And so, you know, our NOI dropped yeah. and I just wanted that. I didn't want to sit it out and wait for to get our NOI back up to, you know, get a higher price. I just wanted to move on and cut my, and I was willing to, to take a loss on it and move on because, um, you know, I valued my time. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. ended up, uh, you know, taking a small loss on it. I feel like that's a common theme you hear, which is the absolute horror of horror stories is a small loss. You have other, other business, other investment categories where it's, you have, you know, the, the possibility of losing all of your capital, massive volatility. And you, you start to hear horror stories in Mm -hmm. real estate and you're like, well, that's actually not, the end of the world like obviously you Mm -hmm. went through that experience and it didn't sour you from real estate in general in fact simultaneously you're having a lot of success with just pivoting the strategy a little bit so maybe talk about this transition even though this isn't particularly an individual story but the transition of that learning experience on active versus passive investing yeah i mean i i I realized through that experience because you know that was um, that was an extreme example of the situation for all of the other active uh, buildings we had, but all of them were challenging. And I, I was discovering with my passive uh, multifamily investments that I was earning better returns without the, the, the time and stress and the headaches and all of that. And so it, ma- it makes zero sense to continue doing that. Um, and so it was really a no-brainer to pivot to um, you know, participating in and in, in, in passive deals, um, and I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of challenges with with these smaller buildings. I think people think you know they want to graduate from maybe they're doing single family and that's how they got their start, and then they're thinking, well, if I can get twenty units under one roof, then that's way better than than one. It, it is on paper, right? But there's a lot of challenges kind of in that that tweener stage, right, where you get into these smaller multifamily properties like under eighty units, let's call it. You can't afford to have property management on site, right. you know. So you have you, you need to use a third-party management company who, you know, they're they're sending people over, you know, on an as-needed basis whenever there's a showing or when there's a maintenance call or whatever. 
and <clears throat> so you're, you're you're paying more as a percentage of your your P&L for that type of management and you don't have somebody there you know on site that can yeah. they can help tenants and yeah. resolve maintenance issues and those types of things so it's it, it sounds counterintuitive but when you get over 80 or 100 units they're actually a lot easier properties to run, to, right. to run and, and manage. Right. And so there's very few people that financially can swing going out and buying a hundred unit property themselves. Mm -hmm. And so really the only way to get exposure is through this, this syndication route. Right. So for someone who is new to the space of passively investing in multifamily real estate, what are, what, what are your return, just very mm -hmm. high level, what are your return expectations where you're, where you're saying, hey, this is, this is what I expect to perform and historically this is where I'm at and, and what calculations are you right. using to track that? Yeah, well, it, there's the historical return. So over the last five years, the returns on, on, on realized deals have been more in the, the 20 to 30% range, right? But moving forward, I don't have those same return expectations. and reason being is just deals cost more and it's more competitive space. There's a lot of money, a lot of institutional capital that wants to be in multifamily for good reason, right? Because there's really strong fundamentals like we talked about earlier. And, um, you know, we've got a really low interest rate environment. So people want, they're chasing any yield that they can get and you can get that in apartments. So all that money coming into the space has pushed pricing higher, which pushes down future expected returns. Um, at the same time, you know, deals we were buying a year ago that we thought we were paying very fair pricing for, and my my forward expectation for returns was maybe, you know, fifteen percent a year. Those deals have performed well above expectations because cap rates have continued to come down, right. which has pushed valuations higher. So um, that could continue to happen, and we could uh, it could continue to s surprise all of us. But at the same at the same time, there's eventually, you know, you, you can't have cap rates go to zero. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so my expectation as an investor is much more now in that, okay, if I can earn 14%, 14, 15% average annual returns over the next five years, you know, that's a deal that, um, you know, I'm still willing to invest in. What about from an ongoing or right out of the gates cash flow perspective? What mm -hmm. are some of your expectations and, and what yeah. you think other people should be looking for? It depends the market. So I would say um, I like to take a barbell approach to, to the portfolio. So I like to have some exposure to like your high growth, high growth markets like a Dallas Fort Worth mm -hmm. or a Phoenix or Atlanta. Like the reason being is that's where all the migration is going is, is to those cities. They're coming from the coast and they're going to those cities. They're also very business friendly states. Um, so you've got when you've got all this migration, it, it pushes up demand for housing, which pushes up rents, which pushes up values. And so those are like your growth stocks. If you're thinking right. of like the public uh, public markets, you've got your growth stocks that are going to give you potentially higher returns. Um, but it's also those markets you have to pay a lot more for deals, right. so they potentially higher risk. So if I'm investing in a Dallas, then my cash flow expectation is going to be lower because you're paying more for those deals, but your future expected appreciation is higher. So I'll take maybe a a five or six percent year one cash flow on a, a deal in Dallas, and knowing that I'm likely to make up for it on future appreciation, just yeah. because Dallas is going to add a couple million people to their population over the next nine right. ten years. Now, if I'm investing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Little Rock, Arkansas, where 
those are stable markets, slightly growing, mm -hmm. but you know they don't have these huge, huge population growth. You know, I want to see that year one cash flow north of eight or nine percent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, eight to ten percent range. Right. Knowing, okay, I'm going to get higher cash flow, more more income coming in, more yield off the investment, but I'm uh, probably not going to get as much appreciation that I'm going to get in some uh, in a growth market. So right. it's more of like your safe safer dividend stock is exactly. kind of how I see it. Exactly. And I like to have, you know, both in the portfolio. That's great. So now as you've, as you've progressed into more of the passive uh, side, remind me again, how many sponsors roughly have you worked with? Uh, probably, probably a dozen. Yeah, dozen. Mm -hmm. So any stories that jump out to you as notably positive, not notably negative, in the purely passive investments? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, from the positive, I mean, just really, you know, anything, uh, almost everything in multifamily has continued to um, do very well over the last four or five years as cap rates have come down. So, um, you know, all those investments that I made in 16, 17, 18 that are either selling or being refinanced, you know, I've had really favorable results. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple deal. There, there's a couple that I invested in in 18, 19 time frame with a sponsor who, you know, looking back, I, I was just doing a lot of deals and not really, you know, I, I, I was vetting them on paper, but I, you know, I didn't even have a phone call with with the sponsor, and, um, you know, those 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 deals have struggled, and I, I think it was a sponsor who was just going out and they had a ton of, they were able to raise a ton of capital and they were just buying everything in sight, and. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that deal today if it came across my, my desk now. But um, at the end of the day, again, we talk about like even your bad deals like turning out okay. Like I still anticipate being fine on those, but it hasn't been, you know, um, that, that money would have been better yeah. deployed elsewhere yeah. for sure. Quantify fine. Well, so I think we'll still, yeah, we'll still make money on the yeah. deal. Um, yeah. It's just... Um, you know, it's there's no been no just distributions have been paused for you know right. a, a couple of years and right. um, it's just yeah not great locations and yeah. I don't know that it's getting a lot of the sponsors attention because they've got you know they're just they're for they're more it, it deal they're just doing a lot of deals right mm. they're they're you can tell oftentimes if a sponsor is their focus just doing deals to generate fees. Or is their focus on doing, you know, just good deals, right? Because there is, there's definitely a lot of sponsors out there that are, um, you know, just doing deals to generate fees. Mm -hmm. So, the best deal that mm -hmm. you've ever done, that, that maybe it hasn't come full cycle, but what right. is the the highlight? Or if if you said if all my deals were exactly yeah. like this, this is the one I would do. 10 times over. Yeah, I mean, a few come to mind. Like one we bought in in fall of 18 that we just closed our refinance and we got all of our capital back. So that's like a dream scenario. 100%. 100%, and, which is a dream. Plus we received distributions over the last couple of years. So we've gotten more than our initial capital back. Plus we still own the property. So that's a dream scenario for me personally. And, uh, and I try to educate people on this because I would much rather get my money back via a refinance, which is not a taxable event, mm -hmm. than selling the property and then having this big taxable event and then having to go find somewhere to, you know, a new deal to deploy the capital in. Right. I would much rather um, own a good deal 
get my capital back through a refinance and continue owning that deal and collecting the distribution. So I've had several of those where, you know, they've been a significant percentage of the initial investment have been refied um, back to me after two, three, four years. Um, So those are, those are the ones that come to mind. I mean, it's, it's fun when the, when a deal sells, but um, I always love when there's a refinance. So that makes me want to ask on IRR. Mm -hmm. Are you a big, is that something that you're tracking a lot? Because a lot of times yeah. people who are obsessed or really focused on the IRR maybe have a different view on the sale versus refinance that you just shared. Yeah, I'm not IRR driven. Um, there's, a, there's a quote I like to say, you can't, you can't eat IRR. Um, I like to look at cash flow and equity multiple. So equity multiple is if you put a dollar in, how much do you expect to get back at, at, during the hold period? So a lot of times you'll see, you know, like on a five-year hold, what's the equity multiple? Is it two? Is it 1.9, Meaning if it's 1.8, you put a dollar in, in five years, we're expecting that you've made a dollar 80, right? So almost double your money. Two would be you've doubled your money in a five-year period. Um, I'm really trying to, you know, I want to be doubling my money every five years. That implies that you're earning about 15% per year on your money. Um, So that's how I, how I think about things. Um, because there's, you can juice your IRR by, you know, buying a deal, doing your value add, and and selling it 18 months later for, um, say a profit, say an equity multiple of 1.3. Yeah. So you've you've earned 30 percent on that initial investment, but your IRR might be 40 percent. Exactly. So you've got this huge IRR, but um, you didn't make a lot of money. Like you you would have you would have compounded your wealth and and grown your wealth more holding it. Um, and so I think a lot of sponsors like to get in and out of deals to, to juice those IRRs up because it helps them raise money for right. their next deal. And, and that's, that's fine, but it's, it's not really an important metric, uh, to me. Yeah. Plus you have to go and take that capital and find a, and a new investment, which exactly. to the point you've made, it's, you can't always find great deals. So yeah. And also too, you know, with, sponsors that are IRR driven, like oftentimes it, they, they where this is where you get into some misalignment of interest where the sponsors incentivized to sell because they can generate a higher R and get their promote. Whereas it might make more sense for the investors to just continue owning the property. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's, we're going to pivot into the seven keys and we might hit on a lot of the same stuff, but we're just viewing passive investing in multifamily real estate through one, we're just going to talk about each of the seven keys and kind of your experience with it. And so the first one is trust. And to frame it up uh, for you and the audience, uh, the first four keys have to do with evaluating a sponsor that's very focused on the passive side. And then the, the last three keys have to do with evaluating an individual investment. So we're going to start and probably spend a little more time mm-hmm. on the first four. So trust is this word that we all use and we all would agree we have to trust the people we're doing business with. Uh, And there's the tangible sides of trust where it's like I can look at the factual data that they're providing me and does it align and did they blatantly lie, like easy stuff. And then there's the gut level, the the, am am I sensing a red flag? So just help us understand your approach and your philosophy around 
how to determine the trustworthiness yeah. of a sponsor. I mean, it's the first box I have to check. Like, if if it's not a sponsor um, that um, doesn't doesn't pass the mark there, then I'm I'm not gonna even like look at the deal, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, there's a few ways you build it. One, there's there's just the implied trust of if, if a sponsor, you know, a, a, say a deal comes across the plate from a sponsor that I haven't done a deal with, but they've got this incredible track record. They've got this big, you know, they built this big team over a long period of time. Like they are, they have credibility already, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I'm going to, um, if I'm interested in the deal, like then I'm gonna I'm gonna flesh that out and, and spend some more time. Um, you know, really figuring out, okay, do I, do I trust these guys? But they already have passed a lot of those initial tests because they have credibility. Right. Um, there's a lot of sponsors, you know, that I, I'm not necessarily going to, you know, even go down that path because they just, they don't have enough experience. It may be, I, it's not that I don't trust them because they might be uh, fraudulent or bad people. Right. It's I don't trust them to, you know, manage my money well because they might not have they don't have the experience they haven't done a lot of deals they haven't been through the ringer um and so you know a lot of it is is the first thing is is credibility and track record and and all those things and then it's then like you point out it's the gut of getting on the phone with them ideally meeting them in person Mm -hmm. um and you know discovering you know that that intuitiveness of okay do i trust this person do i like this person that's another important thing like I, you know, my kind of rule is I only do business with people that I know, like, and trust. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to have a personal relationship with them and right. know them. And I want to like them right. in addition to trusting them. Um, you know, if I just get two out of the three and, you know, I, 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 I know them and I trust them, but I don't like them, right. then I still don't want to do business with them. Right. Yeah, as, as we talk a lot about the, the seven keys as a funnel, so trust is at the top of the funnel, but it's the only one where it's not a individual checkbox where it's like, okay, I've, I've evaluated a person or a sponsor at that level. And now I'm moving to the next. It's the one where you keep referring back to as you're looking at track record, as you're looking at the team, you're always gauging back. Uh, you know, you continue to evaluate the trustworthiness, but let's start with the initial you mentioned getting on the phone with them, getting in person, as opposed to going really deep, like the the seventy one questions you ask a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to go that detailed, but talk talk us through that process of those initial conversations, and what are the things you're looking mm-hmm. for? What are some of the questions you're asking? Yeah, um, I mean, I really want to just hear them them talk about their business and. Um, and, 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 and I'm looking for, again, I'm looking for, for credibility. I'm looking for expertise, thought leadership, you know, what makes them different from, from other sponsors. Um, and yeah, how, how they carry themselves. Right. Um, all of those things. Right. So track record. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned track record. What are you looking for? What's, what's a good track record in your opinion? What's a lengthy enough to where it's like, okay, that's, that's you know of substance yeah yeah i want to see i mean the longer the longer they've been in business the better right um ideally you know if they've been through multiple cycles that's that's a bonus it's it's hard to find a lot of guys that have you know been in 
real estate syndication from you know prior to 2008, 2009. A lot of the uh, so it's not a requirement for me. A lot of the guys I work with are you know uh, you know maybe started in 2010 or yeah. 12 or 14 or 15, but um, that is a that was that's definitely a, a bonus because if it just it's just experience. It's more experience. They've seen um, they've seen the show before, right? Because history tends to repeat itself in rhyme, right? And so um, if someone's been, the more experience they've had, the more deals they've done, they just, they've built up, um, they've just built up that, that experience that is, is irreplaceable. Right. Um, you know, and, and just looking at the performance for their prior deals, their past deals. You know, past performance is not a guarantee of future results, but right. it, can also, it can often give you a, a good indication of if someone is good at what they do, right? right? Have they been able to perform um, you know, better than the market. Right. Um, one thing that I, you know, that I have seen though, that I'm, you know, careful with is there's a lot of sponsors who, who've had incredible track records, you know, since call it 2012 or 13. Um, but because of that, now their fees are maybe double what you might pay with another sponsor who maybe they're, they're incrementally a little bit better. Maybe they can right. generate a little bit of alpha, but you're paying, uh, so much more in fees for that, right? Um, that I, I I tend to shy away from that because, especially now where the future expected returns are lower, um, I don't want to lock myself into a situation where I'm I'm paying uh, a way above market rate and in fees to a sponsor just because he's got this this great track record. When I could find somebody else who's uh, maybe as good or close to as good yeah. that has more of a market rate. You hit on a really important note there, which is, as I talk about the second key track record, I, the, the qualifier, or if I add to it, it's track record plus, which tra so track record is looking backwards, plus business plan or looking forward and weighing the two. So the example I often give is, does someone have a track record of doing value add on D properties, taking them from D to C properties. And the opportunity they're bringing you is, you know, an A plus ground up development. Mm -hmm. But the point you make, which is really helpful, is not only looking backwards, evaluating track record and how it relates to, to the, the current business plan, but the, the structure, mm -hmm. the structure of the deal. So talk a little bit about the structure in the situations where you're saying that's not an attractive yeah. structure and then this yeah. is a structure I look for. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, three, three, four years ago, it seemed like most structures were pretty similar. They were, it was kind of a narrow range of, of, of structures. And it seems like over the last couple of years, um, I've seen a lot wider range and dispersion of structures and fee structures. And uh, a lot of that is sponsors who, you know, most of them got started in, you know, at the bottom of the of the cycle, you know, 2012, when you could buy stuff in Dallas for 25,000 a door or 20,000 a door, that's now worth 130 a door, um, and they were able to ride that wave. And then, yes, there was some um, some some competency there, um, and and you know they have they did they knocked it out of the park right on their returns because they caught this giant wave. But now, you know, they they are taking taking advantage of that by charging, you know, just much much higher return uh, or fees yeah um so 
what what's a what's a structure you look for? Um, it, it I'm not married to just one, but I would say market rate right now would probably be like a seven or eight percent preferred return mm-hmm. with like a you know thirty to fifty percent uh, you know going to the sponsor above that. Right. Um, but I've seen deals recently where you know as soon as the investors get their capital back, they're giving fifty percent to the sponsor. So I'm seeing more and more of those types of deals where you don't get a preferred return, you get your capital back, and then you're giving 50% of the upside to the sponsor. And those sponsors, I mean, it's an amazing deal for the sponsor, but in an environment where the future expected returns are lower, and now you're paying even higher fees to that sponsor, then your future expected returns are lower again, you know, it's, it kind of compounds on itself. So I think you have to be careful there. Yeah. You touched on alignment between the sponsor and the uh, LPs or the, the investors. Maybe elaborate that on that a little because we're, we're still talking about this mm-hmm. funnel and something that I hear a lot is kind of at that initial phase of evaluation is just, hey, are we aligned philosophically? Right. And are we aligned on how we all hope to make money on this deal? So maybe talk a little bit about philosophical alignment or structural alignment with sponsors and what you're looking for there yeah um i think i think one of the big things is like is it does it seem like the sponsor is just is really just fee hungry and wants to generate as much in fees on the on the front end on the like when the deal closes how much money are they they putting in their pocket and how many different ways are they finding that they can that add a add a fee and and you're going to see fees on every deal and fees are fair for sponsors to a degree, but again, it comes back to what's market and having an understanding, looking at enough deals to kind of get a feel for what is market rate for a fee so that you can spot when things are out of line there. And I think um, it's clear to me that, that some sponsors are just, um, you know, it, it's they're, they're so fee hungry and they're looking to generate as much in, in fees on the, on the close date as they can. And to me, that creates a, a disalignment of interest because that tells me you, you could go buy something that, you know, you, you, they don't really, they'll buy something that might have, um, it's not a great deal because it's going to generate a lot of money for them the day that deal closes. Right. Um, and that's not a situation I want to be. I want to be in a, a situation where the sponsor's got a lot of his compensation more on on the back end if the deal performs well i want to see the sponsor putting his own money into the deal and not just taking uh, a bunch of money off the table the day that the deal closes getting hyper specific here what are the top questions you're asking like specific questions you're asking sponsors regarding fees and Mm -hmm. structure and what are the answers you're looking for i mean the, the the it's, it's usually me looking through the deck to find okay. these things first because okay. um, it, it should be disclosed. Right. Um, if it's not, then that would be a red flag. And so, um, you know, the biggest impact to the investor returns is going to be is going to be the, the split between the investors and the sponsor. So is there a preferred return or not? Um, what is the preferred return? Is it 5 percent, 7 percent, 10 percent? What's the split to me as the investor once we get that preferred return? Um, so all of those things, those, that's the, the biggest thing I'm looking at because, um, that's going to have the biggest impact on my returns. You know, I'm not going to, um, you know, fight or, or, or really dig into, okay, is the asset management fee 1% or one and a half percent or one versus two? 
because you're talking about um, dollars that don't really move the needle a whole lot, even if, if you go from one to two percent. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I'm starting with the the, the, the numbers that really drive uh, is gonna, are going to have the, the biggest material impacts first, and then I'm looking at those other things like, okay, is there asset manager fee? Is it in market range? Is there acquisition fee in, in market range? Are they charging one to two percent, or are they charging three, four, or five? Right. Um, you know, if, if, if it's way above market rate on the acquisition fee, then that's a huge turnoff to me. Yeah. Um, are they, I've seen things like loan guarantee fees on non-recourse debt, meaning the sponsor is signing on a loan that he doesn't have recourse on, except in the event if he's committing fraud, he has recourse. And then you're paying him as an investor to sign on that loan um, that doesn't have any recourse to him if, if the deal goes bad, unless if he's committing fraud. And so to me, that's stuff like that's a huge turnoff because um, it's clear that they're just using it as a as the deal as a piggy bank. Right. You're paying them. Uh, you're paying them a fee so that they don't commit fraud. That's basically. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. But <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've that actually that the sponsor that comes to mind that I know was doing that. Um, I know he recently had a, a lawsuit related to um, an issue, and immediate like within a couple of weeks, and then they had a big settlement against him. And then within a couple of weeks, they announced that they were buying like a hundred million dollar portfolio. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, like are you're buying, are you buying this deal because you like the deal, or are you buying this deal because you need you need the money? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so team, okay, and this is this is key number three. What's your evaluation? As you look at, you of course have the the uh, partners or the the owners of whatever the, the company is, and then you oftentimes, depending on the size, have a team. What's your evaluation process yeah. when you're looking at the team? Well, you're going to see a couple different types of sponsors. You're going to see sponsors who have all of the capabilities or most of the capabilities in house, right? They've got their own property management company. They might have their own construction crew, um, you know, asset management, regional directors. All of that's in house. Um, that's that's generally a bonus because it shows me that there's you know they have all of that that expertise in house and no one's going to care about your money more than you do right, right? Um, that seems to be increasingly more rare in the syndication space it seems to be more and more sponsors who are just uh, you know good at putting the deals together mm-hmm. but then they're leveraging third party management so that they don't have to build that capability out right and so they're they're just asset managing mm-hmm. but there's a wide uh, spectrum of involvement on asset management. I know sponsors who, you know, just turn the keys over to the third party management and then they go looking for their next deal, right. which is not the types of sponsors I want to work with. And then there's sponsors who are using third party management who are still heavily involved on the asset management and they're, you know, on the phone every day with their property management company and looking at their KPI dashboards and really staying on top of things, which you need to be doing if you're not doing the property management in house. Um, so for me, it's it's always a big plus when they have those, when they have that uh, infrastructure on the property management side, on in house. Right, right. Do you ever? There's a wide spectrum of how deep different folks will go. Do you ask about okay, who is actually you know who are the individuals that are going to be managing this? You know, if you do you go out and tour sometimes like in mm-hmm. advance of a purchase, what's going to? Yeah, sometimes it it, it depends. Um, you know how much I'm investing, and, right, and so forth. But um, yeah, getting 
you know, it, touring a property is always a bonus because nothing replaces seeing a, a property in real life compared to getting on Google Street. At the same time, there's amazing tools. You can do a ton of due diligence and you can look at crime in the area and, you know, median household income and, and get on Google Street and see, okay, does this have curb appeal? Does it not? Is it across the street from a park or all these yeah. other things? So you can still do a ton of that online. And uh, a lot of times I am doing a lot of that uh, diligence online. Right, right. Okay, so transparency. This is a, a lot of thought went into, should we have this as one of the, one of the primary seven keys? Because every, every one of the keys has subcategories, right? Mm -hmm. You can dig in and pull back the layers. But something that we've heard a lot of feedback from investors, especially I feel like within the last couple of years, is see, having the quality of communication and the degree of transparency as a really critical threshold for evaluating sponsors. Is, is that the case for you? Mm -hmm. What's kind of your experience there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the caveat that I know of some really good sponsors who are not the best at communicating, right. you know, and they just don't place a high value on, you know, on, on, you know, over communicating or providing a lot of communication. I mean, they kind of just do um, enough, right. um, but they are really good at, at, at what they do in all the other areas that matter. And so, but at the same time, I do uh, prefer, you know, more transparency is, is, is always better and um, more communication is always better in my opinion. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, as a, as a passive investor in these deals, like you are, you are a customer of the sponsor and you know, you want to be treated with a certain level of customer experience. Right. right? Yeah. And you want to know what's going on in the deal. And I think it's, it should fall on the sponsor to, um, to, to, to not take that responsibility lightly and yeah. not just you take it for granted that people are giving you money that they worked really hard for and turning that over to you and entrusting that to you. Um, you know, there's a certain responsibility that comes along with that. Right. And I think it's important for sponsors to show that that, um, that they aren't taking that for granted and that they do uh, value the investors and that they want to communicate and be transparent, as transparent as possible about, about what's going on. Yeah. What's the cadence you look for mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, monthly communication, quarterly calls, reports online. I mean, yeah. there's a lot we can dig into here, but. Uh, monthly or quarterly are both are both fine for me. Um, in, yeah, I would say that that's pretty pretty standard. I, I have, but I have invested with some deals where it's like you just don't, you just don't hear from them you know, where it's not consistent or it's sporadic or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, monthly or quarterly. Yeah. And are you, is your experience I've got any information that I need or any information that you need. It's like I have a portal or I have ways I can access that information and that's the expectation or is there kind of a broader spectrum where there's plenty of situations where maybe there's data that I'm trying to find out and mm -hmm. it's actually pretty difficult to, to get answers. Yeah, I mean, I think a portal these days is like, it's just like mandatory. Uh, I mean, there's so many software providers now that can they can just, you know, white label that for a, for a sponsor. It's it's a pretty plug and play solution now um, for investors or for sponsors to have a portal for investors and 
where they can put the documents and all the communications and distributions and things. So um, if a sponsor doesn't have a, a portal, then it probably means they're like, um, you know, pretty small or, you know, inex or new to the game and, you know, kind of just getting started. Yeah. So now pivoting into instead of assessing a sponsor, I use the analogy of the ability, uh, which some people aspire to have it. Others are really just primarily focusing on the sponsor, but the ability to say, look at looking at individual deals and say, no, 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 yes. Like that's the, that's the deal. I'm choosing mm -hmm. it this over, you know, slew of other options. And oftentimes what I see is the fund structure is a little more appropriate for people who don't want to do that yep. exercise but then the individual syndication model is maybe better for those who are want to go to that layer layer of expertise or focus. So the first layer, the, the, the fifth of the seven keys is we start very broad and we just say the type of investment. This is a very check the box thing and you've alluded to this, which is you kind of focus in that middle category of value add. You have kind of the core plus on one end of the spectrum. You have the much more speculative uh, you know, development, various degrees of that, but development on the other end. So what has drawn you to that kind of middle category of value add? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I love value add because you're buying something that's already producing cash flow. Like day one, when you take over ownership of that property, it's, it's producing positive cash flow. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got like development projects where, um, you know, you go into the deal, and then maybe it's a, a year before you break ground, maybe longer if it gets held up by the city. Um, lots of different, lots of variables there, a lot more risk factors, um, things that can, that can jump in your way. Then you break ground and maybe you're done in two years, hopefully. Again, a lot more things that can go wrong. Lumber can go up 5x like right. it has. Right. Um, and that whole time, so maybe it's, maybe it's three years in a, in a in a good scenario where the property's finally done, now you gotta lease it up. Now you got a year of lease up. So maybe it's four years from when you originally made that investment before you're like, you know, renting it, renting it out. Right. And that can be compressed. Maybe they're raising money like when they've already, you know, they're like getting ready to break ground and it can be compressed down to a couple years, best case. Right. Best case. Um, but it's still, I mean, I, I remember I did a development deal in 18 and it's like, it's in lease up right now. Right. Um, I think it's maybe like 40, 50% occupied because they just, you know, they started leasing up six months ago. So it's just a lot, much longer life cycle and a lot more risk factors and things that can go wrong. And, um, you know, the economy can shift during that time frame too. So uh, development, you can, you can potentially earn higher returns. But for me, one of the great things about real, real estate is the passive income. Yeah. And, you know, you just don't get that with development. Development's like you're, you're kind of, you're investing in, um, you know, a, a, a startup that you hope is going right. to, you know, produce cash flow down the road out into right. the future and that um, nothing too, too bad goes wrong. Exactly. Um, and so it's just, uh, it's not that, that those don't deserve a place in the portfolio. It's just about thinking appropriately about position sizing, mm -hmm. you know, and like if you're going to invest in, in startups, right, you don't put it all on one startup. You right. invest in a hundred and you, you size those positions 
um, you know, maybe equally. And then you have a few that are home runs and some singles and doubles and then a bunch that go out of business, right? Exactly. So if you're going to do more speculative type investing within the real estate, real estate realm, um, either you have a specific expertise around that and that's your edge and, you know, you're comfortable, um, you know, being more aggressive there. Or you just, like me, I don't have expertise in development and I, I, I understand the risk factors um, that go along with it. And so I'm just going to, you know, it's going to just be a smaller allocation right. in my portfolio. Um, but value add, if I can get still, maybe I don't get quite as much alpha as development, mm-hmm. but I'm still getting really good returns plus the immediate cash flow, plus the tax benefits and everything else. Um, this feels like a, a easy trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. I want to peel back the layer just one one more layer on value add so i can't remember where i saw it recently but it was the comment that um a comment on the current state of real estate and that term value add and it was a a product could be built by god himself brand new product and it would still be called value add of course and so maybe share your insight on okay you see the word value add and basically the 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 reality is it's it's probably going to be on uh, claimed on you know ninety five percent of the deals you're seeing out there. So how do you right. how do you evaluate? Well, is this actually value add, and to what degree is it value add? Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean some of it's uh, common sense. Like I see new deals that are passed along that were built three years ago, and they're 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 calling them value add because they're saying the units are already outdated. You know because what was in three years ago is not quite in today. That's much different from buying a 1970s product that um, still has units that haven't been updated in 15, 20 years and yeah. still have carpet. And, you know, if you look at it, it's clear, okay, this is out, this is outdated unit and that there's potential to renovate this and put in LVT flooring and new fixtures and new paint and, uh, and charge more in rent, right? Yeah. Um, so then it's just down to, okay, well, how many of the units are, are un- unrenovated? Because even on some of this older product, you know, 1960s, 70s product, in certain markets, um, like the higher growth markets where these deals have traded a lot over the last 10 years, like uh, Dallas, to use as an example, some of these vintage deals, they might have traded four times in the last 10 years. And each time someone is coming in and doing their value add. And so finding out, okay, how many of these these units are still classic and unrenovated? Or is this just a situation where we're buying something that's been renovated three or four times in the last 10 years and we're just hoping that we can, you know, slap some more lipstick on the pig and increase rents, yeah. you know, $100 or $200. Like, yeah. it's, it's digging into that to see what is the, the business plan here. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we closed on a, a deal today that I'm an investor in and like 95% of the units are classic and unrenovated. So that's a true value add. It's been owned by the same ownership group for 15 or 20 years. And so you can call that value add, but you're 100% right. Everybody's using it. It's a buzzword and it's like become completely watered down uh, terminology. Yeah. Key number six, thesis and narrative. This is the layer where it's the first level of analysis on a deal. So prior to getting into deep into the numbers, it's the, does this investment make sense from a, just from a narrative standpoint? And what is the thesis? What's the high level business plan? Walk us through your process on how you evaluate a deal, you know, 
mm-hmm. really the first layer of, of, of evaluation on, on the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is sponsor. You know, it, it, is this a sponsor that um, that I'm willing to invest with? If it, if, if it doesn't check that box, then I move on. If it yeah. does, then it's, okay, what market is this in? Yeah. Is this a more of a growth market, like a Sunbelt, uh, Sunbelt City, you know, um, or is this more of a, um, you know, kind of a flyover market? Like, you know, you can put Kansas City into that bucket or um, Springfield, Missouri, or, you know, a market like that. So that, and that's going to give me, you know, um, that's, that's the next thing of, okay, do I, do I want to allocate more towards this type of growth market or do I, am I looking to allocate more towards more of a, um, you know, a, a more of a stable type uh, right. market? And then from there, it's okay. What's the how? How is what's the sponsor saying? Is the is the the business thesis here? Um, and I want to hear: Is there anything compelling there? Do they own nearby deals? Do they did they source it off market and, and you know got a um, you know a discount to market that way? Like, is there is there anything that makes this you know compelling to me as an investor, or is this just another deal yeah. um, that you know? someone you know they, they they went in they were in a bidding war and they happened to pay the most for it so they were awarded the deal yeah. and they're calling it value add but it's you know 90 percent of the units are already renovated so i'm just looking for okay is is there really any substance right. here to the to the business model right um after i've already validated is it a sponsor i want to work with and is it in a market that i uh you know want to invest in yeah so key number seven, terms. And terms is an overarching term, which is the numbers, the underwriting, you know, really digging into the details of the deal. And we've hit a lot uh, hit a lot on, you know, we've talked about cash on cash and IRR, but walk us through that next layer of analysis that you do. What kind of, you know, you, you, so you check the box on, you know, the narrative, you've got some compelling elements of the deal, you've already qualified the sponsor. Are you using, do you have your own like Excel spreadsheet analysis you're doing? Like walk, just walk us mm-hmm. through that process of when you get really detailed on a deal. Yeah, um, so as I, if, if, if it's a deal that you know, checks the initial boxes and I wanna dig in further, then the next thing I'm looking at is how they underwrote the deal. Um, and do I agree with the assumptions that are being made? Because at the end of the day, a sponsor is telling you, here's the return that we're projecting um, but that projected return is made up of a lot of individual assumptions. Yep. And so I want to know what those assumptions are and, and whether or not I agree with those assumptions. And so some of those assumptions, uh, some of the big ones are going to be, you know, what are they projecting that they're going to be able to increase rents to after doing the value add? You know, how much money are they spending and how much are they saying that they can increase rents by? Or, or, and are those out of proportion, right? Are they only investing a couple thousand dollars a unit, but they're saying they're going to increase rents 20 or 25%. It still could be possible if the current rents are just well below market. Um, but that would be something I would want to, to dig into. Um, I also want to know, okay, what are they projecting for annual rent growth, right? Beyond, okay, you do your value add and you increase rents from that. But you know, what, as you get into the out years, two, years two, three, four, five, are you projecting that rent growth is going to be two percent? Are you projecting rent growth is going to be three, four, five percent? Um, because it doesn't sound like a big difference, but it drastically changes the numbers. And so, um, you know, you have to realize that just kind of slightly tweaking some of these numbers can get the returns up to a really attractive place for investors. Um, and the investors might not realize, oh, well, it's because they just took the rent growth from two percent to three percent which 
that's fine if rent growth is going to be 3%, but what if it's not? And so, you know, it is, um, do I agree with, or do I, do I agree that it's a, a, a conservative assumption, right? Because ultimately that's what I, I, I want to see is that overall are the assumptions on the conservative side, or are they kind of middle of the road, or are they aggressive? Mm-hmm. If I start digging in and I seeing seeing that some of the assumptions are aggressive, then it's like I'm not gonna. It's just like I'm done. Like I'm on to the next one because, like, why invest in something where, um, you know, say they're projecting the returns are going to be 15, 16 percent, but to get to that number, they're using what I consider aggressive assumptions. Maybe they're saying that their rent growth is going to be. Four percent, which it's still not that that's an impossibility, but with where we're at in the, the business cycle, I would rather be conservative and say let's just let's just like bank on two percent. Yeah. Um, what are they forecasting for the cap rate that they're going to sell for in five years? Whenever they they go to exit the building, are they saying that they're going to sell it at you know current cap rates? Are they saying that they're going to sell it at lower cap rates, which would be what I would consider aggressive, um, or are they building in some conservativeness? In a buffer by saying we're actually projecting cap rates are going to go um, up, which would be conservative because you're assuming that valuations are going to to go down, um, you know, in the future. And so that builds in some buffer. So I, I want to see, I want to see uh, just the that buffer and that conservativeness that um, is still able to produce an attractive return. Because then, you know, if 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 you are able to exceed, you know, these conservative assumptions, then the returns should should be higher than what was originally projected. Right. And then if things like hit the fan, you know, you've already built in that buffer and you built in that downside protection. Right. Um, you know, another big thing I want to look at is, you know, what's the last trailing 12 net operating income? And then what's our, what's our debt cost going to be? Cause ultimately I'm looking at what happens to this deal in a really bad scenario. Right. Cause I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm thinking about protection of principle, um, like preserving capital, and I don't want to uh, put myself in a situation where, you know, you're playing a game of, you know, where you've got really thin margins and you're just hoping that everything goes right for you to make a good return. It's like, right. I want to be in a deal where if, even if a lot of things don't go as planned and, or, or go poorly, or, you know, we go into right into a middle of a, a recession that we're able to weather the storm and just wait it out, wait for things to improve and, and we're fine. Because at the end of the day, the, the worst thing that can happen is that you can't meet your debt service. Right. That's the only way you, you lose these 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 deals. Because you can wait out. Or, I mean, most recessions last 12 to 18 months. You can wait these things out. You just stop pushing rents. Um, but you can't wait them out if you're struggling to meet your debt service. So how much how much buffer is there between, okay, let's look at the last 12 months. How much, how much net operating income is there? Which tells you how much money is there to cover your loan payment. Right. And what's our loan payment going to be? Right. Right. Um, is there a, is there a pretty big spread there? Because if there's a big spread there, then you could you could uh, handle a really big dip in occupancy, and still be fine. Yep. Yep. But if there's not a big spread there, if it's really tight, then uh, uh, you know a, a doesn't take that large of a dip in occupancy before you're struggling to meet your debt payments, mm-hmm. which is not a situation you want to be in. Yeah. So assumptions is kind of a key term going right to all of which you hit the nail on the head. There are, this is a forward looking, it's a mm-hmm. forecast. So a lot of assumptions are being made in any of these, which is which is important for investors to remind themselves of. So you hit on a point, which I want, which ties back 
to key number two, which is track record. And it is the, are you able to, and is this part of your analysis in looking at it, the historical track record of a sponsor and seeing where they projected investments to perform versus where how they actually turned out to get a feel for how aggressive or conservative that sponsor mm -hmm. is with their assumptions. Um, usually when you're seeing a sponsor track record, they're just showing you here's the returns that we realize. You're not seeing um, a comparison. Right. Um, but, you know, in, in with the way the market has been over the last 10 years, it, you know, the, the track record for, you know, most sponsors has just been has has been really high and so you know it, it's it's they've all outperformed you know even their initial mm. projections for the most part right. um, um, because we just it's been a more favorable environment than you know probably even the most optimistic people projected right um, in terms of what have happened to, as interest rates have just gone lower and lower and then you know rents have continued to push higher it's been just a really uh, kind of a golden age for apartments. Exactly. Um, so your analysis of that is more so I'm looking at the present mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm assessing on an individual deal basis just how aggressive or how conservative I think those individual assumptions are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I want to, we're going to revert back to a topic that we hit on kind of in your uh, as we we're just going through your story. Um, but it's a really important note because you have particular experience in this area is tax strategy in general. So what I'd like to do is just have you share your perspective on tax strategy. You go as, as broad, go in any direction you want, but just think of the individual who's new to real estate and and the, the concept of how to maximize their, their, their tax strategy is, is it's just a new arena right. to them and kind of maybe speak, yeah. speak to that individual. Yeah, I mean, so the IRS has, has really always incentivized real estate investment. Um, at the end of the day, they, they make up for it um, in, in other ways by incentivizing real estate investors with all these great tax advantages. So really, even if without trying you know, for some for the person who's just looking to passively invest in a deal, and they're not even trying to create like a creative tax strategy, they're going to get amazing tax benefits, right? Because if they're buying a property that's you know producing positive cash flow and they're receiving distributions from it, they're going to get a K one at the end of the year that shows a, a big loss because of the depreciation. Mm -hmm. So they they made money, they collected money, but with any other type of investment, you would have paid you know ordinary income rates on that on that income you know, at 37.2% or whatever it's at now, plus state income taxes, plus 1% if you live in downtown Kansas City. Right. Um, but with real estate, that depreciation shields it. So without thinking about it, you're you're in a very tax efficient vehicle because your returns are being shielded by that depreciation. Now you can take that up a level, which is what I've done with my situation and um, meeting the qualification for a real estate professional so that now those, those losses that I have, not only are they shielding the income from that specific investment in property, but I've got excess losses that can then go offset other sources of income that I have. Um, if you don't meet real estate professional status, then those losses can only offset what's called passive sources of income, mm -hmm. um, which for most people, they're working a job or they have a business, those aren't passive sources of income. So they're not able to use those losses to offset. Um, 
by qualifying as a real estate professional, I can offset really any other type, any other type of income, whether it's passive or active or investment income or, you know, whatever it may be, I can offset. So my, my strategy and, and kind of methodology is, you know, throughout the year I'm looking at, okay, I'm, and I'm literally marking down income and the amounts because that tells me how much I need to generate in losses mm-hmm. to offset. And so I need to make sure I'm always investing enough in real estate to throw off enough losses, unless I have losses that I'm carrying forward. So there's some of that involved with too, but it's just a calculate. It's a math problem right. that I that I take great joy in solving every year. <laughs> so uh, Joel and I have been real estate professionals in our whole adult life. So the concept of not paying uh, taxes is is normal to us. But you're in this hybrid model where you're a real estate professional, but you have a lot of income in operating businesses did i hear you correct that you have not had a tax bill the last couple of years yeah three years now three mm-hmm. years now and so is that that might be shocking to individuals yeah. uh who who have really high tax bills so you mentioned it's a mathematical equation what's the first layer What's the first layer that you're going through from a simplistic standpoint where someone who's new to this would say, oh, okay, I see, I see how Alex is running that math. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple ways you can approach it. There's the approach of, um, for most people, they're not going to um, have the time to meet the qualifications to become a real estate professional. So if that's their situation, then the next step would be figuring out, can I... Um, can some of my sources of income be classified as passive? Is there a way I can maybe restructure some things um, to, to have this income come through as passive? Because then I can then go invest in real estate, generate the depreciation losses and offset that because those passive losses will offset the passive income. Right. Right. So that's what you would do if, if you're not, um, if you, you can't meet the qualifications of a real estate professional. Um, another, another approach would be if you have a spouse, I mean, you're filing a, a married filing joint return, right? So it doesn't have to be you. If, it, if it's your spouse could maybe meet the qualifications, um, then that's another approach. And, and honestly, you can probably meet the qualifications owning a couple rental properties, you know, and, and, and being hands on with them. It's probably enough to, to show the IRS that you're the, a real estate professional. And then you could, invest in syndications and, and other passive things to generate enough losses. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's kind of, you have to determine, do I want to try to get the real estate professional designation, yeah. me or my spouse? If not, can I, uh, restructure some of my income to be passive? And if not, if the answer is, is no to that as well, then you're kind of just left with like having this really tax efficient investment right. that you're not, you're not using the losses, but you, you don't lose them. You carry right. them forward. Right. So you'll carry them forward until you are able to lose them or use them, which one scenario would be like when you go to sell that property. Exactly. If you sell that property in five years, then you'll be able to use them then to offset. Yeah. So yeah. it's not use it, or, use it or lose it situation. Right. Um, but ideally, you'd be able to use them in the current year right? because that's um, you know the time value of money. Exactly. So how much of this is your own research and how much of this is I found a CPA, an expert, and you know, they're kind of my go-to yeah. person. 
I would say most of it is from when I spent that time immersing, uh, immersing myself in the space, right? And, and meeting people who um, were, were doing these things, right? Because, um, yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just me, uh, you know, it's the wisdom of other people right. that I've been fortunate to, you know, to learn from. And then me just putting in the work to put myself in a position uh, to receive that wisdom, yeah. you know, and going to events and devouring podcasts yeah. and reading books and things. Um, so I kind of put these pieces together. Yeah. And now I try to share that, you know, what I've learned with other people and help them understand yeah. how they can put it to use in, in their life, just like what you're doing. Yeah. Any advice to someone who doesn't have the time to go to the detail that you have mm-hmm. in assessing their tax professional, their CPA, any advice for those people? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 following people like like you and what you're doing, which is putting out educational content for for investors, whether they're starting out or whether they're, they're more experienced, they're gonna they're gonna be able to glean things from this. Um, so I think you can cut out a lot of that a lot of that work by just following uh, the right people who are you know taking the time and, and effort to give you that you know content that's just worth worth its weight in gold that you know you're you're giving away for free yeah yeah i cannot thank you enough this has been an absolute pleasure um we of course are both in kansas city and so we'll we'll continue to be doing business together but just thanks again for having you yeah thank you i loved it 